Hello, hello, this is me. I'm talking. Here we go. All right, from the top. Nick Capodice. Hannah McCarthy. Civics 101. End of episode. <laughs> Ta-da. <laughs> Uh, but for real, I am excited for this episode, Hannah, because you promised me a madcap romp through one of our favorite subjects of all time, the Supreme Court, the arbiter of the supreme law of the land. That is right. And why are we doing this? Well, the Supreme Court must, according to their own rules, convene for a term at 10 a.m. on the first Monday in October. And it is currently November as we speak these words, so we're about a month and change into the term. And during this term... They're going to hear arguments in cases they've decided to review. Now, this argument schedule is public. I'm going to post it on our website. And the arguments themselves are public. But seats are limited and you got to wait in line to get there. So in lieu of that, though I certainly encourage you, my beloved member of the public, to follow your civic-minded heart to the queue, I'm going to let you know what's going to be going on behind those big brass doors this term. You know, we really could make a whole episode just about those doors. We really could. Just so everyone knows, the doors to the Supreme Court are wicked impressive. Um, you know, I probably will make an episode about them at some point. Famously, the only work of art or architecture that the sculptor of those doors ever signed, mm. uh, which, by the way, is in the tradition of great classical artists only ever signing the front of what they consider their magnum opus, their masterpiece, uh, were those doors, right? He was like, this is my greatest work ever, my most important representative of truth and justice. Okay, I digress. The doors are cool. Supreme Court docket 2023 to 2024. Whoop! Let's start with the most recent case to be heard. November 7th, United States v. Rahimi. We'll hear an argument this morning in case 22915, United States versus Rahimi. General Proliger. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please... Questions at issue? The Second Amendment, domestic gun violence, and gun safety. So you're starting us off easy. This case is going to determine whether a federal law that prohibits people with domestic violence convictions from possessing guns is constitutional. So currently there is a federal law that says people with domestic violence convictions cannot have guns? For the lawyers representing Rahimi, yes. And they're basing this in part on a 2022 Supreme Court ruling in a case called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin. And all you really need to know is that SCOTUS decided in that case that gun laws are only constitutional if they're rooted in history and tradition. Now, what does that mean exactly, history and tradition? Well, in the Bruin opinion, Clarence Thomas at one point references the era, quote, before, during, and even after, unquote, the founding. Uh, essentially, what that means is they're going to ask questions like, is there a historical precedent for a Second Amendment-based law? And in Rahimi, his lawyers are basically arguing that, no, there is not. His conviction based on his gun possession after the domestic violence conviction uh, was unconstitutional. And the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals agreed. They ended up throwing out Rahimi's conviction. And it was then appealed up to the Supreme Court? Yes. Now, Rahimi himself is not considered a great poster boy, even by gun rights activists. He is a convicted domestic assailant, and he has several illegal use of firearm charges under his belt. And during arguments, the justices basically said to the lawyer representing Rahimi's side, you know your client is dangerous, right? Well, to the extent that's pertinent, you don't have any doubt that your client's a dangerous person, do you? 
Your Honor, I would want to know what dangerous person means. At well, the it moment, means someone who's shooting, uh, uh, you know, at people. Uh, that's a good start. So, so it, <laughs> that's fair. I'll say this. And Samuel Alito asked the lawyer whether he believed that, that was, unless someone is convicted of a felony, they should be allowed to possess a firearm. And when the lawyer hedged a little, Amy Coney Barrett said that she was, quote, I'm so confused because I thought your argument was that there was no history or tradition, as Justice Kagan just said. And then Elena Kagan told the lawyer that he was running away from his argument. argument. Um, you know, the, because the implications of your argument are just so untenable that you have to say, no, that's not really my argument. I mean, it just seems to me that your argument applies to a wide variety. Now, I think the really interesting part of these oral arguments was the conversation between the justices and the lawyer for the federal government. John Roberts asked her to define what she meant by responsible and law-abiding in her argument. Amy Coney Barrett acknowledged that domestic abuse is violent, but asked how the federal government might assess other behaviors as dangerous. And then Katanji Brown-Jackson used these arguments as an opportunity to question the historical tradition test set up in Brewer. Brewer, meaning the case that established this need for historical precedent? Bingo. She talked about the fact that the federal government had used laws to, for example, disarm Native Americans and enslaved people, but that the Supreme Court had not relied on those same laws in questions of firearm possession. She said she was, quote, a little troubled by having a history and traditions test that also requires some sort of culling of the history so that only certain people's history counts. So what do we do with that? Isn't that a flaw with respect to the test? Wow, that's a lot, Hannah. Uh, per usual, the way the justices use cases to throw constitutional shade, basically the most legally important shade that there is, that always fascinates me. All right, let's do the next one. On to number two. Okay, so let's take through some cases that have already been heard. Great. So October 3rd, the court heard oral arguments in Consumer Financial Protection Bureau v. Community Financial Services Association of America. General Prelogger. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. All right, we're talking about money here, aren't we? Yeah. So here's what's up. After the 2008 financial crisis, about which we made an episode with the very helpful Amy Friend, the Dodd-Frank Act authorized the creation of a bureau within the Federal Reserve to protect consumers from predatory lending practices. Uh Uh-huh. So that's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and I'm going to call it the CFPB from now on. Now, it's funded not by an appropriation during the annual budget process, but directly from the Federal Reserve. Congress has said that they can spend up to $600 million, and by the way, they have never spent even close to that much. All right, so how did this case get before the Supreme Court? Like, what was the lawsuit? Well, a group of moneylenders sued the CFPB. Now, they sued over a specific rule, but in the course of that lawsuit, they also pointed out their belief that the CFPB funding model violates the Appropriations Clause in the Constitution. And a Fifth Circuit court agreed. The case was then appealed to the Supreme Court. All right, and the Appropriations Clause is the one that lets Congress authorize the spending of public funds? Yeah, and the lawyers who agree with the Fifth Circuit say that basically— If we let Congress set up this lump sum funding model, they could easily fund any agency in the same way, and that is too much power. The lawyers opposed to the Fifth Circuit ruling say that interpreting the appropriations clause like this could potentially dismantle the CFPB. 
So what happened during the oral arguments? All right. Well, the justices were not strictly divided along ideological lines, which is interesting. Samuel Alito, John Roberts, and Clarence Thomas seem to be pretty convinced that the funding structure is unconstitutional. You have a very aggressive uh, view of Congress's authority under the Appropriations Clause. I'm not saying remotely that that's not correct. Neil Gorsuch wondered if funding caps are essential to constitutionality. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett is worried about this question of the courts potentially determining how much money an agency is allowed to have. Of money spent? I mean, I think we're all struggling to figure out then what's what's the standard that you would use. Just assuming that you're right, that there has mm-hmm. to be something more than the $600 million. How do you decide how much is too much or how specific? Alina Kagan, Katanji so Brown-Jackson, and Sonia that- Sotomayor seem to think that this is a potential overstep for the court to declare the funding structure unconstitutional. Uh, and they think it could jeopardize other agencies with different funding models. And then Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, he was pretty quiet, but he did mention that Congress could always change the CFPB's funding scheme if they wanted to and that the court was not facing some perpetual, permanent problem. Congress could not entrench a funding scheme. In other words, Congress could not pass a law that says this is the funding scheme and no future Congress may alter this for 10 years or 100 years. Everybody seems to be having a lot of different thoughts about this. Am I hearing here that the Supreme Court is even more divided than usual? Well, it does kind of seem that way. It seems like Brett Kavanaugh could actually be the swing vote in a case like this. But we're going to have to wait and see what happens next year. Okay, now, Nick, the next one is a big one. So we're going to take a quick break and a deep breath. All right. And while we do, uh, I ask you, gentle listener, to consider the year ahead, both on the court and otherwise. And know that Hannah and I are going to be with you every step of the way. It's our job to help you understand what's going on in America. So if this is something you support in spirit and you've got the ability to do so, I'm asking you to consider supporting it in slightly more literal terms as well. You can make a contribution to our dear little show by going to civics101podcast.org and clicking the donate button at the top of the page. All right, deep breath and then back to the court. We're back. We're talking about some of the major SCOTUS cases coming up in this term. The ones to watch, if you will. Nick, you ready for another one? Born ready, Hannah. Gerrymandering. Oh, we said a thing or two about Mr. Elbridge, Gary. (laughs) So, Alexander v. South Carolina State Conference of the NAACP argued on October 11th. The question, did South Carolina Republican legislators engage in partisan gerrymandering or racial gerrymandering? Mr. Gore? Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the court. District 1 is not a racial gerrymander. Oh, wow. So how do you figure out which one it is? Wait, also, is one allowed and the other is not, by the way? Well, the court says that racial gerrymandering is strictly barred. But they say that they don't have the power to review partisan gerrymandering. A lower court says it was racial gerrymandering. South Carolina claims, of course, that it was partisan. The problem... In the last election, black voters in South Carolina voted 90% Democratic. Okay, so even if it was partisan, it would also most likely be congressional redistricting along racial lines. 
So what did the justices say during arguments about this? Roberts essentially said to the NWCP lawyer, you're trying to disentangle race and politics. That is really hard to do. We have said that the burden that you're assuming of disentangling race uh, and politics in a situation like this is very, very difficult. Uh, But it is your burden, right? Gorsuch said that if the MAPS challengers had provided an alternative map, that would have been the simplest way to prove their point. But they did not. How do you prove that they are acting in bad faith without showing that they could achieve their objective some different way? Alito pointed out that the mapmaker had a lot of experience and had worked with both parties in the past. I guess that's proof of the mapmaker not being partisan? He is employed by the legislature. That's correct. And has been employed by the legislature for some period of time. That's correct. And he draws maps for both Republicans and Democrats. Yes, he did. Uh, Kavanaugh noted that the Republican lawmakers claimed to have used voting data from the 2020 election, and that if that data was accurate, then the Supreme Court should consider reversing the lower court's decision. We relied on this political data. The response is that political data is no good, so you couldn't have been. If that data is good, should we reverse? No, I don't think so. Kagan, Sotomayor, and Jackson said that they were only there to decide whether the lower court had made a clear error, not to assess all of the evidence of racial gerrymandering. Jackson said there's a difference between the clear error ruling and deciding whether the lower court could have made a different decision. The clear error standard, um, and I, I had it here a second ago, Um, is a highly deferential standard that the court may not reverse just because it would have decided the matter differently. Uh, But Amy Coney Barrett said that it's more complicated than clear error, that it's a question of whether the plaintiffs can disentangle race from politics. I think there's a reason why Dr. Ragusa's report keeps coming up is because it was the best of the expert reports that actually did try to disentangle race and politics, which was the key question here. Again, like a really hard thing to do before a court. Yep. And finally, Thomas asked the plaintiff's lawyers about the second question at issue. Even if the court decides that it was not racial gerrymandering, the challengers are still saying that the legislature intended to discriminate against black voters. Thomas asked what SCOTUS should do about that. And the plaintiff said, we think you should send it back to the lower courts. But if you find, we find no intent, should we or should we just simply uh, resolve it here? So our position on the second claim is that if this court were not to affirm on the first racial gerrymandering claim um, and not find racial predominance there, uh, that this court should remand on the second claim because we believe the district court used the wrong legal standards to evaluate And what should that that standard be? If we're talking about gerrymandering, we are talking about a question that really needs to be decided before 2024. Yeah, because it has to do with elections, right? which means that the court is probably going to act quickly. So I'm going to go ahead and say that it seems pretty clear which way the majority is leaning, but either way, we may not have to wait long to find out. Okay. More. Give me one more. All right. October 4th, my childhood best friend's birthday, and also the day on which the court heard Atchison Hotels, LLC, v. Laufer. Those two things seem very unrelated. (laughs) Mr. Unikowski? Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Laufer sued Atchison Hotels because their website did not have accessibility information as required by the Americans with Disabilities Act. The hotel says Laufer did not have standing. Meaning does not have the legal ability to bring a lawsuit. So why is that? Because, they say, Laufer never intended to stay at the hotel. And a lower court agreed. They threw the case out. 
but a court of appeals reinstated it. Now, Laufer is a self-appointed ADA tester. She has sued over 600 hotels for violations. But in this particular case, she actually asked the judges to throw the case out. Well, that seems strange, Hannah, you know, especially for someone who regularly launches lawsuits like this. What happened is that one of Laufer's former lawyers was found guilty of ethics violations and a judge recommended that that lawyer be suspended. Now, Laufer didn't want the controversy around this lawyer to distract from the point of her work to challenge ADA violations. So she wanted the case thrown out. So she wanted it thrown out, but the justices took it up anyway? They did. Um, and then they said some funny stuff on the, the theme of this case being moot anyway. Well, you know me and funny stuff, Hannah. <laughs> All right. Well, first, Thomas just goes, it seems that this is finished. Uh, respondent says that uh, she has withdrawn her suit. So why should we decide this? I, it seems as though it's, it's finished. And then Alito says, the case before us is dead as a doornail. But the case before us is dead as a doornail and is not going to arise again between these parties. And then Kagan says, this case is, quote, dead, dead, dead in all the ways that something can be dead. You know, uh, the, the, the case has been dismissed by the plaintiff. Uh, the defendant is totally different. The defendant's website, everybody agrees, is now in compliance with the ADA. So this is like dead, dead, dead in all the ways that something can be dead. Now, on the does Laufer have standing question, Sotomayor said she couldn't think of a time the court ruled on standing before it ruled on mootness. But I'm I'm unaware of any case where uh, this court had a standing and mootness issue and decided standing rather than mootness first. And then Roberts was like, well, logically speaking, you have to have a case for that case to be moot. He was actually worried that not ruling on this standing question would encourage other petitioners to moot cases and manipulate the court's jurisdiction. Moot in this case being used as a verb. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Particularly when you have a program of litigation like this around the country by people who may or may not have Standing can manipulate the court's jurisdiction by after the court's granted cert, uh, mooting out the case. He was like, maybe we should rule on the standing question just so we don't have to get jerked around again with this moot thing. And then they all debated the standing question, as in whether Laufer could bring the case at all, whether intent to travel is necessary for standing in this case, the nature of travel itself And whether they were looking at discrimination here, a question that even the liberal justices were not in agreement on. Okay, I'm I'm going to be honest. This is like a word salad, but I do understand it's good for me. It's like a nutritional word salad. It seemed like even the justices were flummoxed and that the standing question might just be left to the lower courts because it's really hard to figure out. Apparently, the decision is expected by summertime. All right, I'm going to give you three more. Ready? Wow, okay. Uh, But first, can I just quickly point out that no matter how we assess the judgment or makeup of a sitting court, argument proceedings can be truly entertaining and kind of weird. Uh, And sometimes you'll hear the word moot so many times the word itself becomes moot. Like if you just say it a bunch of times, like moot, 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 moot. That happened to me with the word back a lot when I was a kid. I could just said the word back so many times, back, 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 back. Didn't mean anything. 
Um, so sorry. Uh, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Sorry. Um, you know, I do have to appreciate that arguments are uh, way less. This is what we deified justices know from on high than you might expect them to be. There's often a lot of, mm-hmm. well, counselor, what does that even mean? And like, okay, so what if we did this? How does that sound to you? It, it, there's just, it's a little more human than I ever expect it to be, and I'm reminded of that every time. All right, December 5th. The day that the 21st Amendment was ratified and booze was back, FDR said it's time for beer in 1933. That was Yep, just in time for the holidays. Uh, Also the day the court will hear arguments in more the United States. All right, so hit me. What is the question at hand? Does the 16th Amendment authorize Congress to tax unrealized sums without apportionment among the states? A salad, if ever there was one, Hannah. Okay, so here's what that means. The plaintiffs in this case are arguing that under the 16th Amendment, which allows Congress to have an income tax... Unrealized gains, that means money that you haven't gotten yet from, you know, for example, an investment that you haven't yet sold, should not be taxable. But right now they are taxable? You can be taxed about something that could potentially make you money in the future? Yeah, so right now there are like more than a dozen taxes on unrealized gains. So why? Um, That is so savvy investors, corporations, and their accountants cannot use fancy footwork to disguise income as non-taxable. Now, if the justices agree with the plaintiffs, that will mean billionaires will get to keep a lot of money, potentially trillions of dollars in tax revenue. And some of the justices on the court will see their own net worth go up quite a bit. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, That will actually be interesting to watch out for. You got another one for me? I got two more. I think we got to watch. We've got Loper Bright Enterprises v. Raimondo. Now, it's not scheduled yet, and this one is tricky because it seems to be about fisheries. Ain't that always the way. What's happening here is that the National Marine Fisheries Service has this rule that the fishing industry itself has to pay for third-party at-sea monitoring programs. At sea monitoring programs. What do they get up to? Well, they are, they're really important. They, they go out on fishing boats and they collect, according to the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, scientific management, regulatory compliance, and economic data. Basically, these monitors are keeping a finger on the pulse of catch limits and what kinds of fish are being caught. All right, so just making sure everyone out there is behaving and we know what's going on with our fish. Basically, yeah. And the industry is saying, hey, that is over 700 bucks a day, and you cannot make us pay that. They say that based on a fishery act that was passed in the 1970s, the National Marine Fishery Service is not authorized to create this industry funding model or make a rule like that at all. Well, Hannah, if I may, this does seem to actually be about fisheries. Okay, but what it's really about is something called the Chevron Doctrine. So named because it involved the Chevron Corporation appealing a lower court's decision in validating an Environmental Protection Agency's interpretation. And that sounds really salady, I know. But to keep it super simple-ish, this doctrine requires courts to defer to agency expertise. So a lower court told the fishing industry, hey, look, that fishing act from the 70s requires a government-appointed monitor on your boats to ensure compliance. 
and Congress left it up to the agency to decide how that would happen. If the agency says you gotta pay, well, under the Chevron Doctrine, the courts have to defer to the agency. You gotta pay. Okay, so let's just say the Supreme Court sides with the fishing industry in this case. And let's just say that that makes the Chevron Doctrine go away. What does that mean? That could mean that the court is empowering the judicial system to tell executive agencies how to behave when it comes to ambiguous acts of Congress. So basically, if Congress is wishy-washy in their language, like about how a certain law should be followed, federal courts could tell the agency how to follow it instead of letting the agency decide. Well, the wishy-washiness on Congress's part, that's often intentional, isn't it? It's intentional a lot of the time. Congress does that when they basically think the experts in an agency are better suited for making certain decisions. One example I read, and this is specifically from the Chevron case, addresses what happens when it comes to the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA. And Congress says, you know, you got to curb air pollution, but that it is the agency experts at the EPA who decide how much because they understand it better. If judges are given the ability to step in, some people think this could mean chaos. Especially, I would imagine, when it comes to politically appointed judges making decisions about corporate regulations or climate change. Yeah, especially that. So we'll see. All right. Last one, Nick. I could do this all day, Hannah. (laughs) Muldrow v. City of St. Louis. Not yet scheduled. A police sergeant was transferred to a different department. She requested a transfer from it. It was denied. And she says the whole process was sex-based discrimination. Now, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 prohibits an employer from, quote, discriminating against any individual with respect to his compensation terms, conditions, or privileges of employment because of such individuals' race, color, religion, sex, or national origin. And a lower court said that this sergeant would have to prove that she experienced a material employment disadvantage, not just that her job changed. Wait, but what is the question that the court has to answer? Aha. Uh-huh. So they have to decide whether Title VII is applicable here. Basically, did the employee experience Civil Rights Act level discriminatory harm? Is the sex based discrimination claim enough? Or did this employee have to also experience and prove in court a substantial change in duties, benefits, and salary? Now, the ACLU filed an amicus brief saying basically that treating someone differently based on a protected characteristic, that is enough. Their argument is that the Civil Rights Act was passed to prevent discrimination, quote, subtle or otherwise. They say that for a court to require additional justification is to oppose the intent of the law. Now, what's interesting about this one is that a ruling in favor of Muldrow would both make it easier for employees facing discrimination to bring claims and potentially make it easier for other employees to bring reverse discrimination claims. Okay, like as in, I am being reverse discriminated against because there's a program in my workplace that mentors women or people of color, and I'm not one of those. Exactly like that. Hannah, it sounds like this court term has the potential to make some major, major changes to law in America. Which I suppose every term always does. But when we're looking at these cases, it's important to remember that what the court chooses to hear is almost entirely dependent on their personal preferences. 
what they want to talk about and rule on. And it is also worth noting that after last year and a slate of politically important cases, the American public sees the Supreme Court as more political than ever. And that's according to the Pew Research Center assessing its own three decades of polling. These cases are about workplace discrimination, regulatory oversight, tax law for billionaires, firearm ownership, gerrymandering, and whether the court will even continue to look at cases where plaintiffs may not have standing. Subjects that everybody would call politically supercharged, except maybe the Supreme Court, at least in their public discourse. All right, that does it for this episode. It was produced by me, Hannah McCarthy, with Nick Capodice. Christina Phillips is our senior producer. Rebecca Lavoie is our executive producer. Music in this episode by Ryan James Carr, Duke Harrington, OTE, Rhymed Clang Soundtracks, LM Styles, Telsonic, and John Runefeld. If you liked this episode, or even if you didn't, drop us a line at civics101podcast.org. Really, we just want to know you're out there, you're listening, and what you think. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.